May God help us to apply these words from scriptures to our lives. Our first scripture reading this morning is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and chapter 2, verse 7. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning's second scripture reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 9 to 14. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit, since the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to These two short texts, which Gary read so beautifully, um, are worth commenting on before we begin. One is, you know, the first is we have two little blurbs from Genesis which represent the two different creation stories that exist in Genesis. Close readers of that first book of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, will know that there's the let there be light, let there be sound, let there be land and water and creeping things. Let there be humankind. That's the Genesis chapter 1 version of creation, which includes verse 26. Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. And then in chapter 2, a different voice, a different creation story. We think uh, not so priestly, not so, but so much emphasis on the power of the spoken word, where you say, let there be light and there is light, but rather much more agrarian uh, reflects a different perspective where God takes some dust, breathes into it, and creates kind of molds out of the ground a human being, Adam, which was a gender-free name early on before the woman was created and then the man created as a counterpart together, but rather a living being. Uh, you have two creation stories here, and then, of course, in Romans, the discussion of the spirit and the flesh, which, unfortunately, what we'll be talking about this morning, we often, too often, understand as a duality, as sort of in conflict with one another, and so uh, we're going to be looking at both of these sets of readings from the Old and New Testament with all of this in mind. Please pray with me. 
May the meditations of our hearts this morning upon your word, O Lord our God, be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Boy, I was looking at my daughter's political theory book. She's a senior in high school, and they're studying the Greek philosophers. It's early in the year. They're still at Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. And as I was sort of glancing, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it was kind of, I was trying to see how much I could remember. It occurred to me that Plato really did a number on us, didn't he? Remember Plato? About 2,400 years ago, he dumped a way of thinking on you and me that we've never really gotten out from under. And so I think we should all resent him together this morning. That 2,000 or so years after Plato, uh, in the Enlightenment, in the latter part of the 18th century, Enlightenment thinkers from Europe like Rousseau and Locke and here in, in, on this side of the pond, Thomas Jefferson, they doubled down on this Greek philosophy stuff, uh, which claimed that we human beings, we have a body, flesh, and we have a soul or a spirit which is very different from, and in some ways antithetical to, or opposite from, our bodies. And our souls, Plato claimed, are immortal. So just as our bodies get old and decay, and believe me, I'm at an age now where that's really coming true, you know, uh, we all kind of peak early. I mentioned, you know, 1987, that was a pretty good year. Uh, We get taller and taller, and then all of a sudden we start getting shorter and shorter and wider and wider. And then a little bit later, if we're lucky, we start getting skinnier and skinnier. Um, But definitely change is in the air when it comes to our bodies. Bodies die, Plato told us. Bodies decay, but our souls live on. And that is where the conflict, the inner and external conflict, which Plato gave to us begins. Now, uh, we're looking at Paul today in Romans, and I always say that to preach Paul or any of the letters in the New Testament, um, there's always the first five minutes of why you should care, because unlike other Bible readings, there's no story, there's no narrative, there's no conflict, there aren't characters, there's nothing to be resolved, and so it takes a little while to... uh, ground the Pauline parts of the New Testament into real life, but we have this conflict that we do all know quite well from our very real lives that has come down as a legacy from Plato and his fellow Greek thinkers, which means there is a story here after all. It is your story and it is mine. Take a look at the quote at the top of our bulletin this morning by Fred Beekner recently passed away, this great author and theologian and Presbyterian minister, um, who wrote these kind of provocative words. Immortal means death-proof. To believe in the immortality of the soul is to believe that though John Brown's body lies lies a moldering in his grave, his soul goes marching on because marching on is the nature of souls, just the way producing butterflies is the nature of caterpillars. Bodies die, but souls don't. True or false, Speakner says, this is not the biblical view. 
although many who ought to know better assume it is. We are the ones who ought to know better, and that's what we're going to talk about today. The biblical view, in contrast to Plato, the biblical understanding of view of human beings is not that you and I have bodies. The Bible says that you and I are bodies. Adam and Eve, these prehistoric, pre-narrative, pre-anything beings in this ancient story uh, were created in Genesis chapter 2 from the agrarian horticultural farmer point of view, uh, that story about God's creation, when God slapped some mud together and breathed breath, ruach, into the mud, the dust, and a life emerged. So body and soul in the Hebrew and Judeo-Christian tradition um, are so much intricately connected within human beings that you can't have one without the other. It's like Beekner says, leaves and flames in a bonfire. They simply can't exist on their own, the leaves or the flames. They are together, body and soul. The second thing about the biblical view of who we are as human beings is that uh, to think that the body dies but the soul does not implies that the body is something embarrassing, something less than the soul, kind of gross, actually, and that is a whole big part of Greek thinking, that we are to sort of shed our corruptible fleshly prisons and soar off as human souls into eternity. Um, And a lot of us of a certain generation grew up with that sort of implied understanding of who we are as bodies, something to be ashamed of. Right? Especially when it came to Christianity, you know, focusing on the body, paying attention to it, following its urges, all those things were considered sort of, ugh. Um, my mother certainly communicated that to a lot of us. Shame is the big word here. And this is a direct uh, inheritance from this duality that we get from Greek thinkers. The Bible, on the other hand, sees the body in particular and the material world overall not as something to be escaped from or shed like a prison of corruptibility and grossness, but rather as something good and glorious, good and glorious inventions and creations of a wonderfully inventive creator, our living God. The 104th Psalm, uh, if you get bored a little bit in the next few seconds or minutes, take a look. It's this amazing sort of... uh, exposition, a very materialistic understanding of faith. The psalmist writes, may the Lord rejoice in all of God's works, and then goes on and sort of in a litany of all the different things God has created, which are not uh, not, uh, uh, less than the Spirit, but rather a part of what the Spirit does in creating life. The Song of Songs, Song of Solomon in the Bible, we want to talk about a fleshy, earthy perspective Wow, read that. Right? Definitely rated PG-13 and more. You don't hear a lot about that from pulpits, but I'm just telling you, you might want to take a look. Kind of interesting. Jesus himself was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton and a partier. But more importantly, if you think about when Jesus' best friend Lazarus died, 
according to the story told in the Gospel of John, Jesus didn't talk about Lazarus' soul suddenly being freed from its bodily prison and, and being released. Jesus wept because Lazarus was dead and had died body and spirit, body and soul. And finally, we know from the Bible, that the, from the New Testament in particular, that the incarnation uh, shows that the human body was not a uniform God, even God, the divine presence, was ashamed to wear. Today in our letter from Paul, uh, which was not 2,400 years old like Plato, just 2,000 years old, um, we, Paul takes up these words, these, this duality in a way that we often misread because of our Plato-like thinking. Paul's letter to the church in Rome, where the Romans live, um, is very famous. It's also the longest letter in the New Testament. Um, it doesn't have a story, like I said. It doesn't have a plot and characters and conflict and resolution. And yet it is filled with incredible, honest, kind of complicated and yet, in the end, very simple truths about who God in Christ is. And Paul says in this text today something that's really important, that it's very easy to skip over. If we don't pause when we're reading Scripture, take a breath and read it closely. Paul writes, but if Christ is in you, I'm looking at verse 10 now in your second reading this morning, but if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Not the spirit is alive and not your spirit is alive. Paul says the spirit is life. Spirit, soul, these aren't accomplishments and achievements. These are gifts. This is life that we are given by a loving God. Another reason why uh, the Bible sees body and soul differently than Platonic or Greek thinking is that believing in the immortality of the soul is same, the same thing as believing that life beyond death is a natural function, just happens, much like waking up after you are asleep. The Bible, on the other hand, speaks of resurrection, right? Everybody dies. Everybody, all of us, according to this particular view of what it means to be human. Beekner writes, we don't go on living because that's how we are made. Instead, we go to the grave as dead as a doornail and are given our lives back by God, just as we were given them in the first place. Not because that's how we are made because that's how God is made. All the major Christian creeds affirm the resurrection of the body. If you think about the Apostles' Creed, you'll remember that's in there. And that means that our belief is that in spite of everything and anything we do or say or don't do or don't say, God prizes us enough to give us back our lives, to give you back your life, again and again and again. God makes sure that life, abundant life now, or life beyond the boundary of death, these aren't disembodied echoes of who we once were. 
but always a new and revised version of us. In a way, it's the original version of us, the version of us that God made in the first place. Some of you know I love to quote this little book written by a, a nun, Catholic nun, who wrote, who's published mostly cookbooks. But Sister Carol Joukowsky wrote a book called Ten Fun Things to Do Before You Die, which is a wonderful little book. It's only like, I don't know, 40 pages, something like that, maybe 50. Um, and there's, she just tells you ten things that we should do before we all pass away. Uh, one of them is think about becoming a nun, by the way. Um, and it's kind of worth thinking about. What, what would you commit yourself to doing fully and completely in life? What would matter to you so much that you would do that? Um, another thing she writes in 10 Fun Things to Do Before You Die is write something at the end of every day. It doesn't matter what it is, shopping lists, reflection on what happened during your day, a note or a letter to someone else, but just write something every day. And then one of the things Sister Carol Joukowsky says in the book, 10 Fun Things to Do Before You Die, is find your best self. Be courageous enough and persistent enough to find it or to rediscover your best self. That's the self God is waiting to give you. Resurrection happens in this life as well as after it as well. But Plato thought differently. And Plato put a lot of pressure on our spirits, on our souls, while totally dissing our bodies. Right? He really separated them in a way that has caused a lot of problems and shame and, you know, circular shame-driven behavior in a lot of people and a misunderstanding of that duality from a Christian perspective has really caused a lot of pain and damage uh, over the centuries. At the same time, Plato put a lot of pressure on our souls, on our spirits. Like, we're the ones who have to sort of free ourselves, overcome the challenges and brokenness and pain of life ourselves. Um, and that's, not, that's an attractive notion, that you need spirit. You've got to be a fighting spirit. Um, I always tell my kids that horns don't give up. And I always tell my kids that, you know, Dad's so wonderful because um, I give and I give and I give. That's just what I do. And then when I got nothing left, I dig a little deeper and I give a little more. But you know what? That's just dad talk. The truth is we can't always fight. We don't always have reserves to dig into, to dig deeper. When I was uh, sort of being a soccer dad growing up, my son, Will, always loved playing soccer. He loves, still loves playing soccer, gets, still gets to play soccer in college. Um, I used to enjoy watching him and the other kids who work so hard and have this really complicated skill set, which in soccer is a lot like music or like foreign language. If you don't get it young at a certain level, you're never going to get it. And those kids are always wonderful to watch, but I always like watching the other kids who you knew weren't going to play soccer after a certain age, but they just had fight. You know, they were fun to watch because they never gave up. They never hung their heads. They were just wonderful to watch, and those are really attractive people, people who have spirit, we say. And then on the other hand, we're always attracted to old souls, aren't we? People have a certain kind of understanding and peace. Even people very young can have an old soul. 
But we can't always have fight and spirit, and we can't always be understanding and at peace. We can't always have it together. And the good news today is that we don't have to dig deeper and fight harder in the end. Our bodies get tired, and so do our spirits, and that's okay. That famous song, Precious Lord, Take My Hand, Lead Me On, Help Me Stand, I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. All of us know that feeling. We just don't like to admit it to ourselves, let alone to other people. Fred Beekner says, the idea of the immortality of the soul is based on the experience of humanity's indomitable spirit. We've explored the entire globe. We've even gone to the moon. We've got great achievements in art, music. We've even done incredible things. The idea of the immortality of the soul is grounded in this notion and the experience of humanity's indomitable spirit. But, Beekner says, the idea of resurrection of the body is based on the experience of God's unspeakable, infinite love. And that love never runs out. That love embraces your body and your spirit and your soul, not because they're perfect, not because after some rest they're going to get it right, but because that's how God is made. God loves us anyway. God loves our bodies and souls, all of who we are. John Calvin, uh, the founder of the Reformed Protestant branch that created Presbyterianism, used to call human beings five-foot worms. That's you, by the way. I'm a six-foot worm. Uh, Meaning that that this is how he began his really popular notion and doctrine of total depravity. Woohoo! That's us. But Calvin also said that we're not meant to stay that way. He was simply trying to say that we cannot do it alone. We can't. We try, but we can't. Calvin also compared us to cracked cathedrals. He said, sometimes the walls are strong and the lights are on, and through the windows of those cathedral walls, you can see and hear dancing and music happening. And sometimes, Calvin said, the windows of our cathedrals are falling out, and the tower may be leaning, and it's crumbling so much it's almost an ancient ruin. But, Calvin says, it is still a cathedral because it is a gift from God into which God breathes the spirit again and again that gives body and soul life. May it be so. Amen.